Well, good morning. I was excited to get the chance to finish out the Advent series, and then they told me we'd be doing Revelation. So up until then, I was excited. But no, I'm still excited. Revelation is an intimidating book, as many of you know. But I think uh, um, from reading this passage, Revelation 21 is a great text. It's a really rich text. Um, And I think you'll see that it also ties into the idea of Advent. If you remember Advent, it's not only the first coming of Jesus. We do celebrate the incarnation. But it points us to a second Advent, a second coming of Jesus when he returns for his bride. Our text in Revelation 21 today will shift us from the Christmas story we've been talking about. And it will point us to that end time reality when Jesus comes back. Now, as we wait for the second advent of Jesus, we intentionally live while waiting. It's the idea of actively waiting. Now, as I thought about the idea of actively waiting, I remembered something that Dave Ramsey said in a course I took this summer. Dave Ramsey is a financial counselor, and he's famous for these little sayings that capture important truths. Maybe some of you will recognize this one. One of the things he says is, live like no one else, so later you can... Nice. Some of you have taken the class too. Live like no one else, so later you can live like no one else. He says this a lot because he's dealing with people that are either in debt or they're trying to save money. Um, and people need encouraged with that because the hard thing isn't the, the numbers. It's easy to figure out a budget. The hard thing is not purchasing things when you want to. Um, it's saying no. Um, that's why he says... Today, you might live like no one else, meaning eat rice and beans instead of going out to the cheesecake factory. So later, you can live like no one else, meaning be financially healthy and sound. It's a simple concept, but the hard thing is to actually do that, especially when everyone around you is going out to eat, buying new clothes, getting a better car, getting a bigger house. That's what makes it tough. And most of you have probably either gone through a season of paying off debt or saving money. Now, you couldn't just not spend while everyone around you was spending unless there's what? There's a payoff. There's a reward or a purpose. What makes saying no possible is saying yes to something bigger. Now, you can say no to buying that new TV, guys, or no to buying that new outfit, ladies, if that leads to you having a paid-off house. You can say no to getting a bigger house if that helps you pay off your student loan. You can even say no, and you can even be that person who eats leftovers every day at lunch while everyone else goes out to Chick-fil-A if the end result is you're laying on a beach and everyone else is stuck in Indianapolis. The no now allows you to say yes to something down the road. Now, I think John is encouraging us with the very same principle. He's encouraging the church of Christ to live like no one else in this broken world so that later we can live like no one else in his redeemed world. I think the point of Revelation 21 and the point of my message today will be that God has given us a future hope that sustains in today's struggles. A future hope that sustains us in today's struggles. So if you have a Bible, go to Revelation 21 if you're not already there. Let me remind you that the word hope in the Bible isn't a subjective wish. It doesn't mean, I hope the Florida Gators aren't awful again next year. I do wish that, but that's not a hope. A hope is a rock-solid objective promise, something awaiting you that you can lean into. 
In this text, there are three hopes that carry us through this life. First, there's the hope of being Christ's pure bride. Second, there's the hope of living in a perfect city. And finally, there's the hope of fulfillment in God's presence. As we consider the first hope, the hope of being Christ's pure bride, follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures as I read Revelation 21.9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven less plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. John to the top of a mountain where he sees the end of the story. The angel also kind of acts as a host, bringing the bride to the groom, and we get to actually see this wedding ceremony. In verse 9, we're shown the first of our three hopes, the bride, in all her purity, her beauty, and her radiance. But in verse 10, well, first off, in the New Testament, the bride, hopefully you know this, is a primary metaphor for the people of God. And Ephesians and other passages, it says, Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. So John picks up on that same imagery here. Now in verse 9, he says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. But then if you look, in verse 10, he immediately starts talking about a city, the new Jerusalem. So, so what's going on in here? Is this an actual bride or is this a city? Well, I think it's both. I think in Revelation 21, the place and the people are so tied together that the bride can be called a city. Now, this would make more sense to us if we had read chapters 1 through 20. But in chapter chapter 17, John mentions another woman. This time it's a prostitute, and he calls this woman Babylon. So in chapter 17, we have Babylon, the sinful prostitute. And in chapter 21, we have Jerusalem. God's people. Now, John holds up these two women as stark and striking contrasts. I think the reason he does that is because he wants to not be seduced by the harlot, but be drawn in by the purity of the bride. So just flip over a couple pages to Revelation 17. I want to read a little bit of a description about this harlot. It's Revelation 17, 1 through 5. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of a great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a, on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's... Now, chapters 17 and 18 go on to describe her wickedness and her ultimate fate. So just to review then chapter 17 and what we saw in 21.9, to compare and contrast, the prostitute represents Babylon, the city opposed to God, and the bride represents Jerusalem, the city of God's people. The prostitute is used by the beast, 
but the, the city of God is wedded to the Lamb. The prostitute is described by her impurity and wickedness, but the bride is pictured as pure and righteous. The prostitute is drunk with the blood of the martyrs, but the, the bride is washed by the And finally, the prostitute is thrown down with violence and found no more, but the bride is welcomed with peace and the two live together forever. Do you see the parallels John is doing right there between a prostitute and a bride? He's wanting us to see, he does it in a story because he wants to see things in a new light. Now Babylon, the city opposed to God, wanted to either turn up the pressure so that people turn from Jesus or offer pleasures so people give in to them. And aren't those the same temptations you and I face every day? What makes the pressures and the pleasures so strong is that they're wrapped up in a lie. The lie is a whisper that by being faithful to God, you are missing out. It's the taunt that if God loves you, why is everyone else getting what they want? That's the lie. And isn't that what we're tempted to think in our day-to-day lives? Isn't that what you're tempted to think when you're skipped over a promotion because you wouldn't compromise or you wouldn't be cutthroat at work? Isn't that what you're tempted to think when your family or your friends think you're foolish because you take Jesus a little too seriously? Or for anyone single, you say no to impure pleasures because you trust God will bring the right spouse your way. And if you're married, you say no because you believe God has already given you the right spouse. In all of those situations, we have to trust that God is faithful and he will reward us. So John is here reminding us, do not give up to the, give up under the pressures of the world. In College Park, do not give in under the pleasures offered by the world. Remain faithful and remain strong. That's why John gives us this contrast of two women. He wants us to look at these stories and say, don't you want to be the pure and faithful bride who lives forever with the king? Isn't the story of the prostitute a sad and tragic tale you want to avoid? That's what stories do. They help us see our lives in a new light. One other application should be noted so that we don't misunderstand. Now, when we see the bride's beauty and purity, we have to know that this is the future bride who is cleansed and robed. The discouragement might come by looking at your life today, even as Christians, and saying, well, what if I haven't waited What if I haven't been spotless? What if when I look at my life, I am not perfect and I am not pure and I am not radiant? I think the picture in Revelation isn't to show you here are the requirements you must meet to get into heaven. I think this is the good news that Jesus is telling us. This is what you one day will be. You really will be this pure and radiant. And that is the good news. You actually be that way. Yes, we are forgiven of our sins now. We are cleansed of sin now, but we still hold on to the baggage of that sin. We still fall. We still resist the groom. We still choose not to submit to Christ. So whether you're a Christian here today or you've never believed in Jesus, we need to hear again the gospel message. That it's not primarily about what we do for Jesus, but what Jesus has already done for us. We can't work. We can't keep ourselves clean enough or pure enough. We can only accept the forgiveness offered in Christ. He came as a baby in the first advent. 
He lived a perfectly righteous life. He offered himself on the cross to take the punishment for our sin. And he offers you now his righteousness. And that's how we are accepted. And this comes to us as a gift, not as a wage, when we stop trying to earn salvation and believe Jesus has already earned it for us. So that's the good news. When you look at your life, don't be discouraged if you're not yet that perfectly pure bride. Keep trying, keep pressing forward, and God will cause you to persevere. And he will one day perfect you. In an instant, you will be radiant and pure and beautiful. So not only is the pure bride wedded to the groom, but he's prepared a perfect home for them to live in together. Having looked at our first hope, the hope of being a pure bride, we will now look at our second hope that sustains us through our struggles. This is the hope of enjoying a perfect home. This home is the new earth, the city of splendor. Even more important than the wedding ceremony is the ongoing relationship between the people. Think of your classic love stories like Sleeping Beauty, Pride and Prejudice, or Shrek 2. Those, those are the only three I could think of. I'm sorry. Um, well, if you remember in those stories, the groom or the prince, he rescues the woman. He throws her a nice wedding and he takes her back to the home where they live what? Yeah, they live happily ever after. That's how the stories end. Well, that's how the Bible ends, actually. And Jesus says this even in John 14 when he says, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, when he comes to get us, the bride is taken to her new home and she will not be disappointed. It will fit her perfectly and meet her every need and desire. Now, Jesus is, of course, a much better husband than I. Now, I usually learn through failures and through bad experiences. Hopefully, you just learn by being told what's right, but I'm not that way. So I'm going to tell you about one area where I failed to prepare a a place for my bride. And hopefully, you can learn from that. So as Pastor Mark mentioned, my wife and I were married 15 months ago here in this same church by Pastor Dale Shaw. Now... I already owned a home, so I was excited to the time where you come back from the honeymoon and you actually live together. I was looking forward to that. But what I didn't do was I didn't prepare a place for my bride. So we get back from the honeymoon. Melissa moves in and we start doing life. And it was only by noon of the first day she starts to realize what's going on and she starts crying. So, again, I wasn't an expert. It was day one, but I thought... Day one of post-honeymoon, you're probably not supposed to be crying. So as we tried to figure out, okay, what's going on? What I learned was I had not prepared this place. It was still a bachelor's pad. She didn't know where she belonged or how she would fit. You see, I didn't realize that a, a single guy's level of cleanliness is way down here and a woman's is up here. Having pictures of dead writers and theologians on my wall wasn't the best home decor. I'm, I'm, st- I'm still learning that, actually. But So she is in the house, and she realizes this is not a place prepared for her. Now, since this time, we've hopefully, she's put her woman's touch on that. It's much more welcoming, appealing, and warm. And so now it actually feels like a home. But that's not just free advice for you single guys and engaged guys out there of what not to do. See, that illustration actually helps me see in Revelation 21 what Jesus is not doing. 
When we get to the new earth, it will not be like that. You will not have to fix anything. There won't be any disappointment, not replacing any junk, no remodeling. It will fit perfectly. When we arrive at our new home, we will know that we belong. If you remember in Revelation, John isn't just painting pictures or telling stories. He's making points. I think here, John is emphasizing that the splendor of the city to come outdoes the allurements of this earth. Now, knowing what our hope is sustains us and allows us to say no to all the comforts we might want here and now. So let's notice just a few things about this new city. Again, keep your Bible open. We'll be referencing these verses as we make our way through. First, it's a physical city. Our eternal destination is not heaven, but a physical earth. In verses 21-2 and 21-10, we see that God's place in the heavens now actually comes down to earth. David Platt says that the, the end of redemption story is not that we go to heaven, but that heaven comes to us. You see, the new earth will be physical and material. You know, we will have physical bodies. There will still be trees and laughter and sounds and smells and colors and food. All those things are still there. I think many Christians don't look forward to the next life, not because they're unspiritual, but because it's been painted in unappealing and unbiblical ways. As we saw even on watching that video this morning and singing that song, all those wonders will be the things that we see and we will be amazed. We will have homes decked out with the nicest of materials and the rarest of jewels. I think many people think of heaven as being this strict library where laughter is rare. Now, you've been in a library, right? And you know what that's like when that that mean librarian is just waiting to shush someone. Now, that's not what heaven is, is like. That's a pretty awful situation. I think what heaven is like or what the new earth is like is like a playground where all you do is have fun. So you have to think, what do you think heaven or the new earth will be like? This boring library or a fun playground? I think it's important that we don't underestimate the creativity and the joyfulness and the beauty of God. He loves those type of things. Our future home on the new earth will be exactly like those things. Excuse me. You'll hear hear a lot of deep voices and scratchy throats today. I think God has a place prepared for us that will just stun us because of its majesty and beauty. I think every square inch of that place will scream out with pleasure. I think our cheeks will ache because of the laughter. I think our hearts will be full because of the thick presence of God. If any of you have seen the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, now, not the new Willy Wonka version, I'll count that, but it's not as good as the original. But if you've seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you might remember the scene where Willy Wonka takes them into the room with the chocolate river. Anybody remember that scene? Yeah. If you remember in that room then, everything they saw was edible. Everything they could touch could be tasted. The whole room was a delight to their senses. Now, I don't know if the new earth will be exactly like that. That's kind of how I think of it. But I think that scene in the movie opens up my eyes to imagine and to wonder about a place where everything leads to our joy 
and everything has an element of glory in it. So first, the new earth will be physical, but it will also be beautiful. In verse 11, and then in verses 18 to 21, we read about its beauty. In verse 11, John says, The city glares with a radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. He then goes on to describe the city made of pure gold and how the walls were covered with every kind of rare jewel. Now, I don't even know what most of those jewels there are, but I get the picture that God uses the best of materials. It says that he uses pearls so big they can be fashioned into a single gate. God is not on a budget, and so the new earth will be stunning. We will have not seen anything like that when we get there. So it's physical, it's beautiful, and third, it's complete. If you look in verse 12, we see the names of the tribes of Israel are on the gates. And then if you go down to verse 14, the names of the apostles are on the wall. This probably symbolizes the completeness of the city, that both Old Testament and New Testament saints are living together. There aren't two cities, there's one city. It's complete. Then it goes on to describe the measurements of the city. And the city is described as a perfect cube, probably 1,300 miles wide, 1,300 miles long, and 1,300 miles tall. John is probably pointing to the perfection and the beauty of this symmetric temple. But if you remember from the Exodus series, he's also reminding us that this is what the Holy of Holies was like. The Holy of Holies was a perfect cube, and that's where God specially dwelt with his people. His presence was manifest there in a unique way. So here John is saying that the new city, it will all be a Holy of Holies. God's presence and glory will fill up the entire city. There will be no unsacred ground, nowhere where you go where God is not present. We will finally see the fulfillment of God's promise. And for all of you who have said under Joe Bartimus' teaching, his favorite verse, that God's glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. So it's beautiful, it's perfect, and it's complete. What we've seen in verses 10 to 21 is our hope isn't in this world but in the city of splendor to come. But you're probably asking the question, so what? How does this actually intersect with our lives? Well, I think it does in one main way. It reminds us that this life and this world is not our home. We must be careful to not make ourselves so comfortable here in this world that we start to believe this is where we belong and this is what truly makes me happy. We tend to build our lives here as if our safety and our pleasure and our security and as if our joy should be maximized here instead of realizing God has a place for us to come that will maximize our joy and our safety and security. We can make sacrifices here if we know God will repay us in the life to come. So every time you're tempted to overspend for something you don't need, which usually for me is buying a bunch of books I don't need, I need to remember that God will one day give me all the things I have wanted. Every time you feel this unexplainable sense of loneliness and it hits you like a wave or like people don't understand you, you need to pause and remember that these desires were created by God so that one day when you see him, you will be fulfilled. Even the uncomfortable things in this life can remind us 
We were not made for this world. I was, I was thankful for Don's prayer. Um, it was almost like he knew what I was going to talk about. And the reality is that we shouldn't be too comfortable here. One, because we are in a battle. And two, because this is not our home. We are waiting for the home to come to us. And ultimately, what makes a home isn't the building or the decorations, although, although those things are nice, but it's the fact that the people live together there. And we've been looking at Revelation 21 to see how John's vision shows us a future hope that sustains us through today's struggles. The first hope was being the pure bride. We can say no to the pressures of the world and the pleasures of the world because we are saying yes to intimacy with Christ. Our second hope was enjoying a perfect home, a perfect city. We can say no to getting all the comforts we want in this life if we know we will get all those things in the life to come. And now we come to our third and greatest hope, which is the hope of finding fulfillment in God's presence. So we've seen the pure bride, the perfect city, and now the presence of God. The biblical story is that the groom comes to rescue the bride and he takes her back to the palace where they live happily ever after. But like any good marriage, although the place is nice and important, what's important is the groom and the bride living together. Now, I'd like to think that my wife does enjoy the house that we now live in, but I think she enjoys me much more than that home. So when we read Revelation 21, we need to love the place, the perfect home, but we need to see that it's the presence of God that actually fulfills us. In this section, there are two main themes. There's glory and there's God's presence. Since we've been told in verse 10 that this place is the new Jerusalem, John would have immediately been looking for the temple. When you go into Jerusalem, you want to say, where is the temple? Where is the place that God meets with his people? Well, we've already been told here, and if you look at verse 10 again, um, Or verse 22, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So God's glory and his presence fill up the whole earth, so there is no need for a singular temple. The whole city is the temple. Joe Bartimus did us a favor last week by talking about the importance of temple um, and giving us a biblical theology of temple. But I think this ties into Advent in a couple ways. First, Advent again is about the coming of Jesus in the incarnation, but it points us to something else to come. With the first coming of Jesus, he sets in motion and he accomplishes those future realities that we're looking for. Consider the area of temple for this truth. When Jesus is born, he comes to dwell among us, to bring God's presence to us so there's no need for a building anymore. John 1, 14, one of the best verses in the Bible, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. At Christmas, the focus is on the Son of God becoming man and entering into the mess and the brokenness of our world and bringing the presence of God to us in that world. And so the incarnation is glorious. Don't get me wrong. The incarnation is a beautiful thing. We love it when we celebrate it. But in some ways, it's just a small teaser of what's to come. 
Because in Revelation 21, we see here that now God's glory fills up the entire earth, the entire city. God will be everywhere with his people. You have a restored paradise and a restored people living in the presence of God. He will be the center of our worship, the center of our community, the center of our lives. And he will be that center 24-7, forever, without end. We are created to be worshipers of God, to live with him and to know him and to be in his presence. Not only is the city full of his presence, but it's full of his glory. Let's read now verses 23 to 27. And this describes the Lamb's glory. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now these verses go really beyond our capacity to conceptualize what the new earth is like. Which, in my opinion, that's good news. Because who wants a new earth or a heaven that you can understand? I mean, I feel safe in promising you this. When you get to the new earth, you will not say, Oh yeah, this is about what I expected. That is not happening. I can tell you that. So in verse 23, we see, There is no need for a sun or a moon, because God's glory fills up the entire city. In chapter 22, verse 6, it says there are no need for lights or lamps which i'm sure that doesn't count christmas lights those got to be there but there are no need for any lights or lamps besides those because god's glory it lights every square inch of the place not only does it light the place but it seems like everything else bounces back the light of god back to him and so the place is just radiant and beautiful and pure So what does it mean in verses 24 to 26, though, when it says the kings of earth will bring their glory into it and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations? It's kind of a tricky verse and it might be alluding to a number of thoughts, but I think it's returning to the theme in Revelation that Jesus is the king, not just the king of Christians, not just king of Israel, but the king of the world. This again brings us to the idea of Advent, where the first coming sets us up for something bigger and greater to come. So think with me, where in the Christmas story do we see the nations coming to Jesus? Again, I was helped out this morning, and so it was the illustration in the prayer of the Magi. When the wise men and when the Magi come to Jesus, that is a picture of the nations, the kingdoms coming to the baby Jesus. And those wise men and magi, they bring their wealth and they bring the glory and the honor of the kingdoms. Now, that's a simple act and a small picture, but it's setting us up for the whole story that's been taught in the Old Testament that grows throughout the New Testament. And here in Revelation, we see the full picture as now all nations and all kings come into the city and they all worship Jesus as king of kings. That's the hope. Not just the king of the Jews, again, and not just the king of the Christians, but the king of the world. 
I think that's the picture in verses 24 to 26. That's why all the nations, they now represent the Lord's glory. Those who in chapter 17 were opposed to him have now laid down their arms and are in submission to the king. So the first advent sets in motion what the second advent points us to. And that is that history has now reached its climax and goal. And that is when Jesus is reigning on a perfect earth with his purified people. And that's the hope we're looking forward to. I want to consider just one application about God's presence and glory dwelling with his people forever. If we go back to our third hope we mentioned, it is the future hope of finding fulfillment in God's presence that sustains us in today's struggles. In other words, even when life is hard and you don't find complete fulfillment now, we set our eyes upon something else to come. What I get from Revelation 21 and 22 is that God sees and he knows. One of the hard things about trials, about suffering, and about pain is that we sometimes wonder, does God see? Does God know what's going on? And if he knows, does he care? That's the struggle we have. Those are the things we wrestle with. But in Revelation 21 and 22, and I think in the Bible as a whole, what we see is that in the end time, when we see Jesus, it will be crystal clear he did see, he did know, and he did care. This reminds me of one other passage I'd like you to flip to, and that's Isaiah 25. It'll be Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> now this, pa- this passage, it's a parallel passage because in Isaiah 25, these are the people of God in exile. And so they also were longing for God's delivery and God's return. And I think this passage, it mirrors Revelation 21 and 22. So I think we can apply this passage to ourselves. I'll read verses 6 to 8. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So how is our future described here in verses 6 to 8 when we are in the presence of Jesus? Well, there's a a rich feast with the best of food. We're served the best and most aged wine. It says the veil of death covering the people is swallowed up and no more. And then think about this. The reproach of the people is gone. All of our shame, all of our reproach, all of the burdens we carry now, all of the sense of condemnation that we still struggle with, that is gone forever and completely. I don't just love those benefits there, and those are beautiful. But what I like is verse 9, the voice of the people waiting for their God. Verse 9 says, and on this day the people will finally say, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. What I see in these words and in Revelation 21 is a picture of God's people finally seeing their God. And in that instant, they get it. 
They had waited on him and they had hoped in him. And now they see him and now they know he was there. All this time and all your struggles, he does see it. He does care. He does love us and he is with us. And so we wait on him knowing that promise is true. And this is the hope that sustains us through our suffering, through trials, through our fears, and through our struggles. Maybe you're a single parent and it feels like you can't just do another day of carrying this burden upon your back. Maybe because of an unfaithful spouse or because of the death of your spouse, you are now alone and day after day after day, you feel being alone. Maybe this Christmas was the hardest one yet and you are not looking forward to 2014. It could be that you lost a loved one and this is the first year without that person and you don't know how is life going to be put back together. It could be that you're in a a dead-end job for another year or you have no job at all. It could be that in 2014 you will still be battling against sickness and pain. I don't know what exactly it is, but I know one thing. You all are people just like me. And as people, we have good days and bad days. We have moments of joy and we have moments of sorrow because life is hard. But what this text tells us, in the midst of hard days that might even turn into hard seasons, that could even turn into hard years, we still have a hope. God promises us grace and he will give us strength for each day. My hope is that as you go through those struggles, that you do feel a sense of God's presence and strength. But even when you don't, or even when that seems to be lacking, look for the coming of Jesus and know he will one day see you and you will one day rest in his arms knowing that he cared for you, that he loved you. That is the hope and that is what we place our hope in. I hope 2014 is a wonderful year for you. I really do hope that. But it may not be. There's one thing I'm especially appreciative for that Pastor Mark says. It's life is hard, but hard is not bad. In 2014, my prayer for you is that you would be sustained through your struggles by placing your hope in that future promise. For those of you who are in Christ, we have this hope. We have this hope that one day we will be a pure bride of Christ. We have this hope that one day we will live in a perfect city where we get everything we had wanted and dreamed of. And we have this hope that one day we will live in the presence of God and we will find complete fulfillment, what our hearts had always longed for. That's what the the Advent song is about. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. And those longings are fulfilled when we see Jesus. So in 2014, just remember this. Look to the second advent. Look to the coming of Jesus. And when things are hard, you have a hope that sustains you through today's struggles. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you have given us your word that tells us we do have a hope. Where life is hard and sometimes it feels hopeless And we are weighed down by burdens and struggles. But we are so thankful that this word says you are with us. You have not left us alone. And you will walk through the valley with us. Lord, use Revelation 21 to change our worldview. To remind us that this is not our home. That we should have joy here. But we should not be too comfortable. 
Lord, thank you that there is the promise that life will one day be fixed, that earth will be restored, that our broken bodies, that our sickness, all those things will be gone, and we will live with you forever. Lord, that is the joy. Give us spiritual taste buds. So that is the longing of our heart. Lord, we love you and we look forward to the day when we are the pure bride of Christ, living in a perfect city and dwelling with you forever. We lift these things up in the name of the groom, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dustin. Well done, brother. Appreciate you very much. What a great uh, feast of God's Word we've already had this morning, haven't we? Praise the Lord. Thank you. These uh, fellows worked really hard to give you uh, a significant uh, portion of God's Word today. And as Dustin was uh, sharing from Revelation, I was reminded and thinking of our study next year in the book of Romans, that at the end of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 16, the Apostle Paul makes a very definitive and, I think, important statement. He says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then he says, may the grace of Christ be with you. (laughs) What a contrast, isn't it? He'll soon crush Satan. And I don't know about you, but there are times I need Revelation 21. I need to hear words like, I need to be reminded that in the midst of um, a city where two followers of Jesus from another church were murdered last week, I need to know that God will soon crush Satan under our feet and then to live in the grace of Christ all day long until he comes. So it's a great reminder today. All right. God bless you, Couch Park. I love you. Thank you for coming. Grace of Christ be with you.